This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. We have got an awesome guest today from California. Mr. Rod Johnson, a.k.a. Eli Gillespie, and we're going to talk about workers comp. This is one of our favorite things to talk about and how he is going about getting new business out there. Eli, welcome to the Power Producers, brother. Glad to have you today. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So it's interesting because as is typically the case when we have bearded guests, the beard game is stronger than mine. I am once again reminded that I probably need some sort of testosterone therapy or something. <laughs> but uh, Eli, listen, man, um, as we always start off, why don't you tell everybody your backstory, kind of where you came from, how you got into insurance and how you got to where you're at today. And then we're going to we're going to start deep diving. Yeah, no problem. Um, I got into insurance because uh, I just was looking for a job. I was actually a substitute teacher in San Diego after hmm. graduating college. This is 2000, 2001. I graduated in 99. So it's 2000. And I'm, I was really into playing piano and wanted to be in a band and, you know, be a rock musician in some way. And, uh, and so I, I was a substitute teacher cause the, the music was obviously <laughs> not paying any bills. Um, and my year as a sub, I actually really enjoyed it, but I knew it was not a long-term uh, plan for my life. And uh, I had a lot of my friends, a lot of my musician friends were kind of more on the, kind of more on the mopey side, you know, kind of the musician <laughs> mentality. And then, but, but the people I started hanging out with were more like business people. And they, this is like 2000.com era. And they're just high on life. And so I started gravitating towards them. And I thought, man, I think I just want to do business. Just want to do business, you know, very broad term. And uh, so my dad owns this insurance agency. And I thought, well, I'll, there's an insurance company called Zenith Workers Comp, you know, Zenith Insurance Workers Comp Carrier, pretty regional, I think. And um, I just went and applied for a job as an underwriter assistant. And through persistence, they actually gave me an interview. <laughs> and then through more persistence, they actually answered my calls, you know, but, but I got the interview, I didn't get the job. And they just said, Look, you seem, you know, like an all right guy, 
but you're a, a teacher with a background in music. We gave the job to someone who has some insurance experience. And um, so then I just called my dad. I said, hey, dad, I got the summer off as a substitute. Can I work for you so I can get this insurance experience? Then I'll come back you know, in three months after I understand insurance completely and fully and uh, start looking for a job back in San Diego again. So he hired me. I was just cold calling. I was actually warm calling, cross-selling our personalized clients, home, no auto, auto, no home, that kind of thing. And I really liked it, but I realized after three months that I didn't, wasn't even beginning to understand. I was just, just the, uh, you know, on the tip of the iceberg of understanding insurance. So uh, I realized I wasn't prepared to go down and try to get a job in any insurance corporate world. So I uh, talked with my dad. He said, well, I'll get you licensed, but stay with me for a year. I thought, well, I'll, I'll do that. You know, I don't really want to be up here. I want to go back to San Diego because um, where I live, it's like inland LA. It's, it's, it's all right. It's a good spot, but it's kind of a small town. and Generally, people want to get out, you know. So here I was back, not too thrilled about it, but but I really liked the job. So fast forward, I'll give you the short version. I just, I kept having a reason to stick with insurance because I enjoyed it. And I started doing personal lines. After a couple of years, I realized it was more fun for me to talk to business owners. It was more fascinating. So I just made the switch. Hey dad, I'm going to, I'm going to start doing commercial insurance now. And, um, you know, no niche, no lines. I didn't even understand workers comp, even at this, this point, it was kind of confusing to me. So I didn't even really focus on comp. And, um, I just, my dad let me, let me have at it. So I started trying to figure out commercial insurance. And then once I started grasping workers comp, um, I decided I really liked that. I liked it a lot because the premiums were high (laughs) and, uh, there was very little chance of improperly insuring someone and having a, a gap in coverage that leaves an uninsured claim. So workers comp was just, uh, was a good route for me to go down. And, and really I realized actually when I really realized I wanted to do comp was when I started doing uh, contractors. So I was doing, I was insuring it, virtually every business that would call, but this was like Oh three Oh four Oh five when the housing bubble was, was really, you know, getting cranked up full, full heat. And so I had a lot of contractors calling. So I would write their, you know, thousand dollar CGL. And then when I talk about the comp, I would lose. I, w- I just, I didn't know the comp markets and I, and, and, you know, they got their thousand dollar CGL, maybe if they're covering any property, you know, a couple hundred bucks. And then the, the comp was 10,000 bucks and someone else was getting that. And it drove me crazy. It drove me especially crazy when the payroll companies were getting that. So I just studied comp and, found markets and learned details and decided I wasn't going to give up the comp to anyone. (laughs) So I was going to lead with the comp and, and that's it. So that's my main, I'd say that's my main specialty. Now I have the CIC and I still, you know, I I think I'm, I think I'm pretty good at the other lines, but I always try to lead with the comp. You still play the piano? Yeah, not as much. I don't really practice anymore, but um, I'm on a, I'm on a church band. And, uh, I play about, well, you know, current normal environment. I play, uh, probably every other Sunday, this church coronavirus. I've had a few months off (laughs) little known fact. I took piano lessons for 16 years. Of course you did. 
Yeah, I, uh, I've been known to tickle the old ivories every now and again. <laughs> yeah, dude. Well, you, but, so you read music, obviously. If you took lessons, I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I also play trumpet, baritone, and a couple of other brass instruments. Jazz so. flute. <laughs> My jazz flute game is weak. <laughs> you know, the piano. As I think back on what you know, what's kind of led to me, led me to get to the mindset that has you know, some level of success is that was really in college. That's when I really got into piano because I took piano lessons forever. Rosie was my piano teacher, the little old church piano teacher. And growing up, I I couldn't bear to quit because Rosie was like a second mom to me and she would just say I was doing great. So I thought it was this great piano. I just kept playing. I couldn't, you know, but I wasn't that into it really. But in college, I, that's when I got into it. And really, that was when I decided this is what I wanted to do. I want to do in some way, perform. I want to do music. And the piano, it wasn't even at that point, wasn't my favorite instrument, but I was good at it. And so if you're ever, I was good enough at it. So if you're trying to get in a band, there's always a million drummers, guitarists and everything. Everyone's like, oh, you play keys? Oh, we need a keyboard player. So I was like in three bands and I, there was no competition to to try to beat anyone else out. Dude, listen to Leonard Skinner in the keyboard in that classic rock band. That is like my favorite. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, dude, Almond Brothers, you got some, there's some good, there's some good uh, rock piano players. And, uh, you know, so I, I started taking lessons at, by one of the, from one of the instructors, one of the doctors of music at, at Point Loma Nazarene University where I went. And he took me to a level of playing piano that I just didn't understand was possible because I, I thought that I kind of reached a limit, you know? And, and so working with him on piano, I realized that you could go further than you think you can go. And probably a lot of people get it at a team sports. I played sports, but I kind of, I kept capping out on things and thought, this is my level. This is my level of expertise. You know, this is as much as far as I can get. And it was really because of piano that I realized you could, you could get deeper and deeper and deeper in things and better than you ever imagined you could when it seemed impossible. And so that mentality took, you know, that I built that mentality there and then I carried it to insurance and realize you could just keep getting better and better and better. And so it was more of an abundance futures wide open mindset that I, that I really started learning from my time playing piano. I think you could, yeah, I think you could draw a direct correlation to the feeling that you get when you first open up a piece of sheet music and you're like, Holy crap, what does this even mean? You know, and you're figuring out how, you know, start practicing with the left hand first, then the right hand by itself, then put it together. Or however you go about it and looking at the insurance policy and you're the, the same thing. Holy crap what does this even mean yeah you know and, and you dig in and you bite off little pieces and parts of it and over time you get better and better and better at it i mean you know i think that that is the one thing that's interesting about playing an instrument there really isn't any cap to what your capabilities are right but you know team sports you you can only throw a baseball so hard. You can only jump so high to play basketball. I mean, there you have physical limitations, and you know, barring something nasty like arthritis in your hands or something like that, you could really do about whatever you wanted. Yeah, you know, on the keyboard. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that about you, man. Yeah. So now I have to read music now. Now it's all just you know 
chords. And now I've really tried to develop my ear. So I don't, I'm trying to just, before it was, it was reading music and, and that's how I would figure out a song and figure out what it's going. And now I've, in the last couple of years, I, I decided I didn't want to have music in front of me. And so I've, I'll look at the chord chart, put it away. And then on, you know, on Sunday, it's my practice session. I'm like, well, <laughs> here we go. You know, hope I, I'm just going to try to get this by ear and hope I don't make too many mistakes. Yeah. Those are the guys that blow me away, man. I've never been good at like improv or any of that, like just picking it up and playing by ear or whatever. I just, I, I don't know, man, I get these mental blocks, even, even with uh, like software programs and things like that. If I don't like wholeheartedly devote everything I have to learning it, I just like pass, pass by it. I just went through this whole thing with Adobe Premiere uh-huh. for like the last couple of years. Cause I didn't understand how layers worked. Uh-huh. Once I said, you know what, screw it. I'm tired of outsourcing this to a bunch of other people. I could probably do it in like five minutes. If I learned it myself, I just took one night, watched a bunch of YouTube videos, figured it out. And now I edit all my own stuff and it takes like five minutes, literally. So it's pretty interesting, you know, when we make our mind up to do things, how much we're actually capable of doing. Yeah. So the the comp market's interesting. It, it's especially interesting in California. Um, you know, I'm I'm intrigued by what you do to go out and get new business. Like what does that prospecting process look like for you? Cause it seemed like a lot of what you were talking about originally were, you know, you had, you were at the beginning of the beginning of the end, really of the housing market. You were there for, you had a solid, probably what three or four years before everything blew up. Yeah. Everybody was calling you. How did you make that transition to go out and start developing business yourself? Well, it took, uh, that didn't come until, probably six, six or seven years ago. when I, when I realized like, I want to, I want to have a, a plan for getting business. Cause I always relied on referrals and still, honestly, today referrals are still probably the biggest I, I, I document it so I could tell you, but I don't memorize the numbers. I spend so much time documenting that I don't memorize anything, but, um, uh, referrals and clients calling in for more. That's probably, that still is our biggest source of new business. Um, although I'm really, I really want to be more proactive in getting the lines that, that I want lines of business in the industries that I want. So, um, I started being proactive with that by writing blogs about workers comp. And that was, that was in 2015 is when I started. And I did pretty much a blog a week for every other week, maybe every week. I don't know. I've got over 50 blogs about about workers comp, pretty much answering frequently asked questions. And, um, and they're still, they still get a lot of readers. I don't get a ton of call-ins and it's actually, I keep telling myself, I want to refine that process content creation better because I tend to get calls for people who read my blogs, who are saying things like, it's awesome. Thank you for helping me. So do I need workers comp? And I'm like, ah, that's not what I want to get. I want people who know they need it and who have lots of employees, you know, maybe who are, uh, have a high X mod, you know, or whatever. But, uh, but that, that brings in read and the, everything is, I'm, I'm not a great marketer, but I know that everything's kind of intermingled. You know, if you have content that also helps your SEO. So I'll get people calling just by SEO, you know, just, Typing in insurance near me or whatever, whatever their their words are, and then I pop up. So I get calls through just online search and blogs. 
Um, and then I use a couple sources of where I pay and I get leads, you know, one of them being trusted choice. That one is, I, I almost don't answer the phone for them anymore and it's nothing against them, but it's really, it's, it's hard to get really quality call-ins on a, on a real kind of it's generic, you know, the, the people that call. So it's not very targeted and I'm trying to get it more targeted for just my, my industry niches and, but ever, but I have gotten two, two good ones, really good ones, like six figure ones from them over the course of the few years I've done that. And then, um, and then there's a service that I pay, they call and they do, they're like my cold callers. They do all, they, they do some pre-research and have, they have leads. I give them an industry, they have names and leads and I put some qualifications and they just target call, cold call those people. So in fact, after this call today, I've got a call with a, with a painting contractor. They used to be in, in person. They'd set up in-person appointments. Now it's his phone for now. But uh, this is a painter. The the sheet says he has ninety employees. So, um, I'll pay I'll pay some money to get that phone call in front of me. You know, in order to get that appointment. What kind of acquisition cost do you have on those? Well, that that one's not cheap. So that's a that's a campaign that lasts. For, I think for they they set it up for a period of time, three months maybe. Or maybe they just have a list. I, I don't even know the details that much. But um, that was ten thousand dollars. Wow. Oh. You best close it. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, so, what niches are you in? Uh, contractors, agribusiness, and food service. And really, my favorite right now is contractors. <laughs> yeah, lucrative. Agribusiness, I love. I love agribusiness, and it's very stable. And uh, but there's just there's so much going on with it right now. I feel like I'm not quite as on top of it as I am with a contractor. When a contractor calls me. I just feel like I've whatever the situation, I I know where to go. I know the markets. Agribusiness has always been. There's been a couple markets, and then lately, a couple of you know, with all the wildfires that happened over the last few years, and farms being out in the wildfire zones, a lot of non-renewals, and are, I'm getting a lot of them. And um, it's it's tougher to place these ones. It's it's tougher to to get them out of the 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 good package deal. And into you know the five or six cares like contractors you know I know that there's you rarely at least in California you rarely if ever are putting a contractor all lines with one with one carrier um, but farm you, you've been able to do that for years until now and I, we're just sitting this point where you know and, and no one's really none of the carriers have really adjusted you know they're like canceling the the property. And they're saying, well, we can't do any of it because we write it as a package. And so it's, it's been a real, it's a lot of non-renewals and uh, it's been a pain. So it's, I'm kind of faced with, well, do I spend time trying to remarket these or, and save them? Or do I spend time marketing to the the ones that I know I can help and then further help the, the ones I know I can help and build my book that way, you know, and kind of let some of these farms go and, you know. I don't know. I'm weighing that all the time, but, um, and then restaurants, that's my third niche restaurants, food service. That one took a hit. I've had a lot of conversations, restaurant owners about business interruption coverage and of it and spoilage coverage. And what are we going to do with ourselves now that our restaurants shut down and delivery, um, you know, but that's, that's turning a corner. I feel like, so I didn't really lose too many of those clients, which was nice. It shrunk a little bit, but 
Yeah. So, I mean, how do you combat that? Like for the workers comp in Florida, I'm sure you have similar options out there too. Like literally every one of our comp accounts is either on monthly or weekly self audit, or it's integrated with a payroll company that we refer in. So we take the hit in real time. I mean, are you, are you doing the same thing or do you have people that you're going to get have having to, negotiate with the carrier to make payroll adjustments midterm and all of that because they had estimated payrolls at the beginning. Yeah. Well, I'm, I try to get everyone a monthly self-reporting, especially contractors um, and uh, payroll integration and everyone has their name for it. Pay as you go, pay as you owe, whatever, all those things. Yeah. I'm mostly, I love it when my clients are on that because of this issue of declining and increasing payroll. It's just, it's not a big deal for them, but I did have a lot, a lot of the restaurant clients are still on a fixed bill, you know, to them, they say it's a known payroll. So I don't want to have to report anything. I just would rather pay my bill and do an audit. And those are the ones where we did call up and, and a lot of the companies were, uh, all of them were accommodating to this. They had a special COVID form where you could make adjustments and with billing, you know, delayed billing and, payroll change and stuff like that so it, it was just time just time spent yeah i'm pretty pumped we haven't had to deal with that that was i mean that's a blessing in disguise i'm not pumped about the fact that you know we've lost some revenue but we haven't we haven't been hit overly hard by that so i guess one of my questions is when you because it's interesting to me i don't really we don't do anything at all with appointment setters because it just doesn't it doesn't fit into sort of the model that we've set up when you get in, when you get into those appointments, how, how warm are they? I mean, cause to me, just to back up a little bit, our first meeting is typically a cold call marketing drop. We, we've dropped in, we're bringing some information by shaking hands, kissing babies, just getting the name of the decision maker and validating an email address. That's all we want to do out of marketing when we're out going door to door, because then we put everything into our CRM and let that start doing its work and the automation sequences we have for follow-up and everything like that. So typically we have had so many touches with somebody by the time we get into that first actual meeting where we're talking and fact finding and all of that, that it's not cold at all. Like it's, you're walking into a warm meeting and they expect you to be there. They know what you're talking about and it's, it's not cold. Mm -hmm. I, so it doesn't feel like a first meeting. I'm interested in when you go in and have these appointments that are set these appointments for you, what, what's the reception like when you get in there? It's pretty good. It's definitely a few stages past cold call and, uh, and you know, who are you and what do you want? Because these guys do a good job. They, uh, they identify the agency and who they're going to be speaking with. And, and they, they usually do, they have, I don't fully know their process, but by the time, you know, they, they make multiple calls to these guys on, you know, on my behalf, essentially. And so by the time I get that appointment, they're, they're ready, you know, they're ready to talk. And they're usually, uh, they're not merely just price, you know, sure, if you're going to quote me, I'll take a quote, you know, although you do get more of those when you're, when you're out, you know, prospecting outside your book, but the people who are, you know, maybe satisfied, but sure, if you're going to give me a price, then why not? You know? Um, and those are, those are harder because if there's no problem, 
it's just a tougher sell, you know? And then if it's just price, just price, you know, you may get it on price, but you may also lose it on price if, if there's no other need you're filling. But, um, but the, I, it's been, it's been pretty good. I've had good luck with this company through with contractors more than other lines because there's more data online with contractors. So you get X date. So the, a lot of these, this info is known, you know, we, you got the, you know, their X mod. Um, so I'm going to go in there really not having to do a ton of fact finding, but just more relationship building and finding out where this guy's at, you know, and, and sometimes you just walk and it's not, you know, it's not going to be a good fit, but. So I have a question though, around that, because the first agency I ever worked at, we had a business development person, which was basically a telemarketer on steroids. She'd been calling for like 20 or 30 years, had this act database that just had trails and trails of notes on these people she was calling. And so I'm, I'm interested in, cause you, 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 re- you referenced that they do some of the research for you and all of that. The way that process worked when she would book leads for us is number one, there was like a, a pre assembled packet of information about me and the firm that was automatically sent to the person that was going to be meeting with us because she wanted them to know who I was, kind of what I was about. This is pre-social media LinkedIn days where everybody can just go online and look for themselves now and probably would anyhow. But also, it was like Christmas morning for me when I would walk into my cubicle and there would be a manila folder that was essentially this research and all of the notes, any newspaper articles that had been written about this company, but she had assembled all of that stuff so that I was prepared. I would go in and do some of my own research in addition to that, but I'm interested in what type of research they do for you. How do they prepare you to be ready to talk to that specific company? And how do they prepare that company to be ready to talk to you? Um, Well, I just get I get an email and on it, they've, they've done a, a there's is a, a lead sheet, I guess they've documented their conversations with the prospect, um, updated contact info, you know, or basically made sure it's accurate. And, um, and so, so when I get it, I see who it is, I see the address. And then I do, I do my research just with, with X mods and prior insurance carriers. And I try to understand yeah, you can get you can you can learn a lot by their X mods and how they've been trend trending over the years. And um, they don't do a they don't do a ton. It's not it's not as fancy as a Manila folder. I gotta say that <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice. But uh, no, it's just a one page PDF that has has info and some conversations that they've had. And let's see if I can pull one up. And yeah, we had the. Um... The, the BDRs when I was at the PEO and I always felt like every appointment that I walked into that was set by one of them was just not going to be as de- definitely not as good as if it, it was something that I had set myself, obviously, as I hadn't spoken with them before. And I, you know, uh, much like you said, they'll give you like your little, um, I didn't get a manila folder either, but I got a little bit of a rundown. Um, hey, listen, what I lack in beard, I make up for in manila. Okay. <laughs> Exactly. Um, but, but yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I had to go back and do my own research and it just seemed like those ones that, that I didn't set myself were, were never going to shake out in a positive manner. Um, I've had good luck 
with this service and I've had some, I've had a couple campaigns that didn't yield any results. <laughs> and, uh, that was the food service one. That was a restaurant one. Cause there, it was hard to get the harder for the marketing company to get an X date. So they would call and it'd be a warm reception and they'd say, but yeah, we just renewed. So, you know, call up. Mm. And then, so I would, I would do that. And then it was kind of more up to me to, do the follow-up and the, you know, reintroducing of who I was and what we were. So I didn't have as good a luck with um, really any businesses where they don't, where the, the X date isn't known, but with contractors having to post their, their work comp info online, they time it right. So, you know, I know right now that this one I'm going to call, he's, he's renewing in September. So this is the right time to talk to him. I know his, I know where he's trending and it's been pretty good. I haven't had anyone that's like not known who I am where I called and they're like, what, who, who is this? What, why are you calling me? It's always like, they're welcome. They're ready for the, they're ready for the conversation. So I don't know what their secret is, man, but they do, a, they do a pretty good job. I'll let you know if I get any, if I don't get any, that's, I guess it's 10 grand that I just wasted. But if I get a couple and you know, I, I've had, so we did this, this guy last, last campaign was maybe in 2013. And my biggest client has come from them. So their, their comp is right now it's, it helps because they have like a 400% X mod, but uh, you know, their comp is 400% is not good. Yeah. Not good. Not good. Um, Not a lot of carriers are are too interested in writing that either, but um, those that are, you know, they do a good job. Uh, It's, I don't know. It's over, it's over a 200, it's $300,000 account, you know, so it's, that pays that pays for a couple campaigns. Yeah, absolutely. So when you go in, I mean, you, you have the ability to know what their experience mod is when you go in because you can pull it right from online. Yeah. Even though it's California is not NCCI state, I know you have the ability to get their mods. Yeah. Um, what does that typical meeting look like? I mean, if you're walking in, how do you set the table? Well, I kind of I go back to the uh, the dynamics of sales with through, through the National Alliance, the CIC course. Um, where you talk about the four cards, coverage, price, relationship, service. And um, I try to see, I, I talk about relationship and service. I try to gauge where they're at using those four cards. And if it's if it's just price, that's probably not going to, I'm not as excited. But when there's just anything in terms of relationship or coverage or service that they're not getting, I feel like the chances of writing that have gone up exponentially. And a lot of it is just relationship. You know, it's, you, you click with someone, you kind of catch them at the right time where they're not getting good service and you just make a good impression. And I, I've had some accounts where I just quote it. It's, you know, it's a decent price and we go with, they go with it and they've been a long time client. So, but that's it. The four cards. I try not to talk, just talk about gathering. I try not to just gather info. I'm I'm going to have to gather info, but I try not to make it like a, I go in, I sit down and start going down a list of info I need. So it's a, it's a, it's a conversation where I'm sneaking in info gathering and I'm just talking and trying to make it real conversational and personal and making a good impression. And um, I'm really glad that we're not doing in-person interviews because I don't know if my, my hairstyle is going to make, too great of an impression, but <laughs> hey, hey, those that like it are going to really like it. 
<laughs> well, you probably play well in the contractor space. The restaurants, maybe not so much. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> so I guess one of my questions is, let's say you go into an account and they've got a 1.0 mod mm-hmm. and it's a contractor and they're indifferent as far as price, indifferent as far as relationship. How do you go about trying to differentiate yourself or figure out a foothold to start trying to bring that account across the finish line? Uh, well, I'm just going to find if there's any pain points and if there's really, if there's not, if there's, if it's just like, Hey, yeah, you know, no, I'm good where I'm at. And I'm thinking of one recently that I went to, it was the guy had a, he was happy with his agent. I looked at his policy. It was good. Oh, we were looking at all lines. It was good. You know, could I have beaten it on price if I really tried hard? I, I probably could have, but I just, you know, he was content, good coverage, happy with his agent, somewhat indifferent. We were getting along, but I realized he's just that kind of guy, you know, he's getting along with me. He gets along with pretty much everyone, you know, and that's why he took the appointment. And I just, I, I just pass, you know, friend in a friendly way. I just say, you're, you're probably all right where you're at. You know, if something changes, you need something, just give me a call. But I try to not get in too deep with my time because my time is valuable, you know, so I'll just, I'll just pass. So if it's something like that with the mod, I mean, I used to think that way, man, but there's there's a couple of hooks that I think that the listeners would appreciate hearing because I, I actually just did a live kind of a deal on killing commercial on one of our calls for the, the people that are in the program a couple of weeks ago where I took an account that for all practical purposes looked like it was pristine and uh, the agent lived three doors down from the client and the mod was a 0.77. Yeah. And I was, my hands were bound because it was a referral from one of my large service contractors that is a substantial amount of revenue for our agency. So I knew I needed to at least have a dog and pony show of some sort because I needed to validate the fact that my guy referred me in. Yeah. Number number one, because I didn't want to make him look bad. Number two, because I want him to refer me into more places because I didn't make him look bad. And so when I started peeling back the onion, I was actually able to, to find some things that were wrong with the structure of the program that to the naked eye would have appeared that everything was great. And I was able to modify how I would approach the placement of the insurance versus what the incumbent was doing. Uh, But, you know, it's interesting because over the course of my career, I've had to learn how to pivot on the fly and how to develop street smarts when it comes to people who don't necessarily appear to have a problem or worse, probably people who don't think they have a problem and they really do. And so, you know, the two things that I tend, three things really, that I tend to gravitate for. And if you're a producer and you want to go lead with workers comp, I'm getting ready to give you three things that you can use every time you go into any appointment. It doesn't matter if it's a good performer or a bad performer. You can use these next three things to drive a wedge and start a conversation in any account period. And the first one is if they come in and their mod is good and they think that their mod is good. My first question always is, how good could it be? Yeah. How do you know that's as good as it possibly could be? And I always go back to the story of an account that I wrote. It was a half million dollars in premium. The guy came in beating his chest. They had a 0.86 mod. 
And he absolutely thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread that they were doing really, really well. And, and I asked that question. He said, well, what are you talking about? I got a 0.86. And I said, well, you know, if I'm grading you on a grading scale like school, you're a B plus. But we don't know. On a half a million dollars in premium, I think your mod could be lower than a 0.86. And I said, so what I would like to do is propose that I'm allowed to get the information necessary to validate that your mod is even accurate. And then let's talk about how good you could be, because it sounds to me like you stopped trying at 0.86 because somebody convinced you that that was good, that that was great. That was exactly where you needed to be. And so we you know, got the information, did a mod master on him and went back and showed him that his minimum mod was a 0.64. So this guy's controllable mod was $100,000 a year that he didn't even realize was affecting him because he just stopped at 0.86. So that's number one. Number two is the um, return to work program, period. You know, if your mod is a one, it's pretty hard to have a mod that's a one. You know, if you're like 1.0 on the nose, unless you're a new company and you haven't had, you know, a lot of experience to, to post to your experience mod or none for that matter. It's if I see a mod that's a 1.0, I immediately think that it's inaccurate because you're you're you could be a 0.99 or you could be a mm-hmm. 1.02, and I'll believe that. I don't believe 1.0 for whatever reason. That's why when you said a 1.0, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, it's a small account did not qualify, has not qualified yet, you know, something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so when you when you look at that, you know, the first thing I, I, I tell everybody, if you do have the ability to have information, if you, if for whatever reason you're in that appointment and the decision maker that you're meeting with happens to have the loss runs, one thing that I think every producer, <clears throat> excuse me, could do is just take a quick glance at those loss runs and go straight down the indemnity column, period. Go down the indemnity column on the claims and look and see how many of those claims have low dollar indemnity values attached to them. And I've seen wild stuff, man. I mean, the one, again, I have very, I have the same examples I go to every time I talk about this, but you know, I met with an account not long ago that the mod was not a one, it was a 1.44. And the manual premium on the count hovered around $30,000, but with the mod, it was at about 50. And when I looked at the loss runs, I, I mean, just quickly glancing down, like I always do, I start in indemnity and then work my way around. But I noticed there was a claim for $75,000 and 500 of it was indemnity. And I'm like, how do you have a $75,000 claim and only $500 of indemnity? It's the first time I'd ever seen anything like that in my career. Yeah, it does seem. And and then they had another one that was 6,800 and there was $150 of indemnity in it. And so it was a really challenging situation. I was, it was a church. I was invited in because one of my best friends is the chairman of the finance committee. And the person that was the decision maker had it made up in their mind that they had, they wanted nothing to do with talking to me. They loved the guy that placed the insurance. It was like I had backed a rat into a corner the second that I walked in and I came in hot. I'm not going to lie. I, I came in strong. You know what? And, and so, you know, we're sitting here talking and, and I asked the question, I said, just out of curiosity, why is there $500 of indemnity on this $75,000 claim? And I mean, the claim was crazy to begin with. It was somebody who had been cutting frozen chicken with a knife and they severed two of their fingers. 
And so I'm thinking, A, you know, why didn't you have a cut glove on? B, why didn't we like wait for the chicken to thaw out? I mean, there, there, I had a lot of questions, but uh, regardless, I said, why do you have $500 of indemnity on this claim? And, and the person said, well, because that's what the insurance company paid. I said, well, I, I guess I'm not answering the, asking the question the right way. I, I don't understand why they were allowed to pay that. You know, I said, in, in you have another one over here that's $6,800 and it's got $150 of indemnity. Why, why is that? Because, well, that's what the insurance company paid. I, I don't understand what you're asking me. And I said, well, I guess I'm asking you, were you ever advised to just pay the indemnity out of pocket at this point? Because you have a split point in the state of Florida that the first $17,000 of that claim, if it's medical only, is reduced by 70% when it's calculated in the mod formula. So if you would have paid that $500 out of your pocket, even though the claim was $75,000, the first seventeen would have been reduced by 70%. And the one that was $6,800 would have been reduced by 78%. Well, I don't think that's how it works. Well, you know, I apologize <laughs> that you don't think that that's how it works. Well, that's your opinion. And I said, no, it's not my opinion. It's mathematics. I mean, that's just the way the formula is. I, I don't, I'm not making this up when I'm talking to you. And I said, in fact, I wanted to make sure that I was proving, showing you how the math worked appropriately. So I actually ran your mod analysis two different ways because I want you to see the impact. So I ran it to validate that the 144 was correct, which it was. And then I, I went back into Modmaster and I pulled I pulled the indemnity dollars out and I coded those two claims as medical only. And the mod dropped from a 144 to a 1.2. Just from five total combined of like 650 bucks of indemnity? Yes, because 100% of the 17,000 went into that claim and then all of the excess above it and 100% of the 6,800 went in. Those claims were both reduced by 70% in the primary layer of the 17,000, right? So I showed her that and she still didn't want to believe what I was explaining to her, and I said, listen, I said, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I decided 15 minutes ago that you were not going to be my client. I'm here out of respect for my friend who's sitting at the table with us. And I understand that the church has a $100,000 deficit in their budget. And I just showed you where 20 some thousand dollars is, you know, plus. Yeah. And I said, so what I'm going to tell you is, while I'm not willing to represent you and the insurance transaction or any risk management piece, I'd like to be a lender because <laughs> what you told me is that because you let the insurance company pay $650 for your you right now, you're perfectly fine with the fact that that's going to cost you $22,000 over the next three years in the form of increased premium because of your mod points. That's exactly what you did. There's not a payday loan company anywhere in the country that gets that kind of return on their investment. So I just want to know how many $650 loans I need to make for you. I'm going to go to the bank and get that money out as long as you're willing to pay me $22,000 over three years for every $650 I loan you. I'm all in on this action. You know, and <laughs> it's it's crazy, but if you look at how if you look for low dollar indemnity and you understand the split point in your state and how it affects how the mod is calculated, you are going to win every single time because 95 percent of the people that you compete with out there have no clue how that works at all. None. And it happens in every single state has a split point. 
So that's a huge way for agents to make a big difference in, at the beginning. And it also tells me that they don't have effective return to work, which is where I was originally going with that. If you've got low dollar, inde- low, low dollar indemnity claims on your mod, you are not bringing people back because they wouldn't exist if they were coming back light duty. And so we go that way and we look at it. The third thing that I was going to say is if, if we, we've already talked about the, the bringing them back light duty, we talked about the um, – what was the first thing I said, Kyle? The mod, I don't like how good your mod could be. Yeah, how good your mod could be. Um, the third one is the indirect costs of claims. So that is a wedge again, and I talk about this all the time, and I do – I actually dr- drilled down pretty deep. Uh, I got really ramped up on the last Facebook Live I did because I get pumped up about this stuff, man, because I just think every agent out there should know it. This is public information. Like I, I, I don't have some secret tricks that I, you know, concocted this recipe in my agency and I just go out and use it. This is public information. Right. That's how it works. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's state law in every state. And so um, – that was the other thing that I talk about is indirect cost of claims. If I go in and somebody's got $100,000 worth of workers' comp claims on their loss runs, and it's a big enough account that it can support those losses without having too much of an impact on their mod, I'm not going to rely on ModMaster or Mod Analysis to get that deal done. I'm going to talk to them about what the Bureau of Labor Statistics says about the indirect cost of workers' compensation claims. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics says – that indirect costs of any claim across general industry is anywhere between two and 20 times direct costs. So if you have $100,000 in claims, you have $200,000 in indirect costs that your company has absorbed in their financial statements and had no idea that they were eating that money, period. They had no idea at all. And they want to argue with you about that. I have an account right now that I've represented for th- going on three years. I went in. The mod was a 2.23 when I st- or 2.27, which is why I went in. It re- originally led me to them. But I talked to them about the fact they had averaged like half a million dollars in claims. And I said, you know, that means you have at least $1 million in out-of-pocket loss costs. And the VP of Ops wanted to argue with me and said, there's no way that we have that kind of money leaking out of our financial statements. And see, the reason they think that is if you're on a guaranteed cost workers' compensation plan, you don't feel those claims dollars getting paid. It's in arrears. You don't feel it till the mod goes up. Mm-hmm. So they don't they don't think that, that, that it's that bad. But I, I just looked at her and I said, that's absolutely what you have. And she said, there's no way I'm telling you, we run a tight ship here and we, we don't have that kind of money leaking from our financial statements. I said, listen, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, the argument you're making with me is completely invalid and you have no chance of, of, of convincing me otherwise. And I said, what you're asking me to believe is that you have a 2.27 mod, which by all accounts is an F double minus in your performance, but yet you're best in class at containing the soft costs associated with claims because the absolute best in class people out there are the ones that only have two times. You could be at 5, 10, 15 times direct costs. Think about how many hours of overtime you've had to pay. How much administrative time have you had to burn dealing with claims adjusters and employees and everything else. How many, uh, how much loss of productivity have you had? How many rooms have you not been able to rent in your resort 
because they weren't clean because you didn't have enough manpower due to injuries and lack of trained associates. How much surp- how much extra money do you have to pay to bring temp labor in here over your regular regular hourly rate? How much time are your supervisor? And I said, listen. Let's just call it what it is. Your whole leadership team is sitting at this table right now. There are eight highly compensated people sitting at this table, and we have been talking for two hours about insurance and risk management. Those are soft costs. <laughs> Add it to the budget. So finally, like the light bulb went off, and every time I see her now, I'm like, I hope you're allocating these time this time to the soft costs to your risk management program because – uh, we all know that it's two to 20 times direct costs. Right. And, uh, you know, I just, I don't let stuff like that go ever, but you know, they're, they're my client and people don't get that, man. They don't realize that just because they're on guaranteed costs doesn't mean they're losing, not losing dollars in their program. So you're talking indirect cost two to 20 times the, the cost of the claim. Yeah. And so, and that's not, that's not David's number. That's from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics average across all industries. Which those the, those indirect costs are the time spent. You're saying with oh, is my something going on? Adobe. No, Ad- you're good. Okay. Um, you're saying is uh, the indirect costs are the time spent where you're dealing with temp labor. And all the, you're talking to the indirect cost to the to the business owner for everything. Yeah, absolutely. Think about it. Think about it this way: if you if you're a manufacturing facility and somebody loses a hand in a machine and that machine goes down for 24 hours, the insurance company's not going to pay you for the loss of productivity or your inability to get product out to the marketplace because you had somebody lose their hand and you had to have the machine shut down to sanitize it, investigate the accident, and all of that. But if you're in a high performance facility, that could be a huge amount of money. And let's take it a step further. What happens if that product was critical and you're a just-in-time manufacturer and you had to get that out to retail to Walmart and you didn't fulfill your order and as a result, you lost shelf space, you're never going to get back. How do you even put a dollar figure on that? Those are the things companies don't think about. And quite frankly, for those of you listening, you're not talking about this to your clients and prospects. You don't even know that this stuff exists out there. And that's why if you do understand it, you're going to win way more than you lose every day of the week. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I have not gotten very far into this whole category that you're talking about. I don't know. And, you know, I I talk about I'm being I'm good at workers comp. Um, I don't think in California, I'll probably get corrections, I'm sure. But I don't think that employers are allowed to pay any indemnity out of their own pocket. It's interesting. I'm not exactly sure what the legislation is in California. Here's what I know that that you can do in the states that allow it. Number one, you can either leave them on payroll. Number two, you can have the insurance company adjust the claim, get it closed out and, and pay the indemnity. And prior to reporting to NCCI, you can have the carrier invoice you for the indemnity and you reimburse the carrier for it. So you're not paying the employee themselves directly. The other thing is, um, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that combat this whole thing of having these frivolous claims like Mike McDonough, the work comp renegade, probably one of the few people that I would tell you in the workers comp world and in, 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 you know, the United States that gets exponentially more. Yeah. He's exponentially more intense than what I am. Um, you know, so that's scary for somebody that that's sitting across the table from him. But, you know, one of the things Mike's really good at is how he handles things when once the claim happens. And, you know, there's a lot of tricks that he's put in place, 
especially, you know, out in your area, out in California, where, you know, he'll go into his clients and set up a, a 1-800 number that's white labeled to his agency or his his client that's a number to a triage nurse and a nurse case manager that these people are going to call in for the first, first report of injury. And they're going to get diagnosed through telemedicine over the phone as to whether or not it even needs to go to the next level. While they're having that conversation, they're gathering the information to fill out the first report of injury. So if it does have to be tendered to the carrier as a claim, they've already got that done. But if it's take two aspirin, take the rest of the day off and go home and ice your foot and prop it up, they've got the records that they need, but it may never even need to be reported at that point. So there are a lot of things that you can do to control some of this frivolous stuff that's impacting the mod. But the three wedges that I just gave are three of the top ways that I go in. And I can tell you, man, you can find one of those three on nearly every single account that you're working with. One of one of the three of them. Indirect costs, everybody has them. If you have one single claim, you have indirect costs. Now, the claim's 300 bucks. It's kind of hard to make an argument that you had 600 bucks of indirect costs and you should hire me. But I mean, there, there are, we're, not, we're not prospecting those people anyhow because we're only prospecting people who have mods of one or higher. Period. Mm-hmm. If your mod is below one and you reach out to me, I'll listen to what you have to say. And we may decide to engage with you if there's a need there because you are missing certain things and you've just gotten lucky to this point. But for all practical purposes, we're not spinning our wheels because the criteria of who we prospect is exactly who we will write and nothing else. And that's where a lot of people miss the boat, too. They fill their pipeline with a bunch of garbage and they sort through it once it's in their pipeline. I don't even let it into my pipeline unless it's something that I would be willing to write. I think that, and I've published articles on this before. I think that that salespeople by and large, if you're looking to operate out of a funnel, you're, you're doing it wrong, right? It doesn't need to be wide at the top and narrow at the bottom. I think we should operate out of a cylinder. You should have just as much coming out of the bottom as you do the top. If you're doing the research on your prospects right to begin with. Yeah. I'm- Security on your pipeline is top notch. Nothing's getting in there. No, no, I have got double. I have dual factor authentication on my pipeline. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on the on the pipeline, um, the the cylinder concept because um, I found that the more I say no and just don't even entertain a whole host of types of businesses or prospects, the the more opportunity I have to write the ones that I want to write, and uh, so I, I pass on a lot of things a lot, but, uh, that's, that's really interesting. I got to look into that indemnity ability to pay any of that out. Cause most of the claims I see that indemnity chunk is huge and that's the big portion of it. Well, and if it's, if it's huge, here's the thing, this is, this is the other thing that you got to be careful of, right? I'm not advocating that employers go out and just start frivolously paying indemnity, you know, right out sure. of the box. If you, if you have somebody who lost an arm, guess what? You can pay all the indemnity you want, but the problem that you run into is when that person gets a, a, a partial, you know, a permanently partial disability or permanent total disability, and there's any kind of a settlement that is that is cashed out, that goes under indemnity. So you just you didn't do yourself any favors. You paid out a bunch of money that truthfully didn't really save you any because the settlement comes in under the indemnity portion of the mod and it gets crushed anyhow. No, so, you're talking about low dollar indemnity. I'm stuff. talking about low dollar, stupid stuff where somebody didn't get somebody back to work. Most of the time, these things work, you know, in conjunction with each other, they didn't get them back to work in a timely fashion. So they accrued a little bit of money that they were owed in earnings. And you probably pay them out two days of earnings past the, uh, 
you know, past the deadline for getting them back to work. Then they come back. Well, guess what? You just blew the whole claim. Yeah. And there's so many ways to get people back. Like it's not counting paper clips, fools. It's not filing folders. There are actual jobs Manila that your folders. clients need. Yeah. There are actual jobs that your clients have in their organization that would qualify as light duty. Mm-hmm. The resort that, that I was mentioning earlier, the number one thing that we did when I, when I engaged with them is revisit light duty and make it a priority in the organization. It was never a priority. They didn't bring people back and their mod got out of control. What did we do? We have them wrap silverware in the restaurant. We have them stuff amenity bags for people that are coming in with the soap and shampoo and all of that stuff. Anybody can do this stuff and it needs to be done. So if your housekeepers aren't having to stuff their own amenity bags, they can pick up the slack and get more rooms cleaned. And then when this person comes back, it all balances out anyhow. But when we got in there and we started going through it, they had such a lack of respect for the leadership of this organization that one of the people that has been, had been released for light duty came in when they knew the HR person was off for the day and they, they, they were supposed to work and they came by and said, oh, I'll just go ahead and start on Monday. This person was scheduled Thursday, Friday, Saturday. They were fully released. They missed all three of those shifts. The HR manager picks up the phone and calls me and says, what should I do? I said, it's time to make an example out of somebody. Cut them loose. They're released for duty. They chose not to show up. It's a no-call, no-show, three days in a row, job abandonment, no questions asked. They tried to file unemployment. They lost the unemployment suit against us. And guess what? We've had no problems with light duty ever since. People finally figured out, okay, we, we, we're, we're serious now. We're going to come back to, we're, number one, we're going to try not to get injured. But if we do, we're going to do everything we can to comply because they're not playing around anymore. I think people don't take a stand. I think people get so concerned that an injured worker is going to sue them, you know, and, and that they hold all the cards that, that they're not willing to do the things that they need to do. And unfortunately, in most states, the system is skewed in favor of the injured worker and not the employer. But if you have the processes and procedures in place, you got to have the backbone to go with it. Yeah. You know, I don't know if what the trend is for conversations you're having with employers, but over the last few years, by far, when I come across uh, a prospect with, with a claims problem, the, the vast majority are telling me that these are bogus claims. They were filed after termination. The guy was not injured. I mean, and the first few times it happens, you're like, yeah, right. I get it. You know, it's bogus. I, you know, but, uh, but it keeps happening. And so I'm starting to believe it because it's been for the last few years. And so, you know, you talk to, you know, these, these prospects like, well, we've got these, we've got these safety things in place. We've got, even got a safety incentive program. We've got all these things. And they're like, but you know, we've got these four claims because these guys were filed after we, you know, it was sour grapes after we terminated them. And so it kind of shifts the conversation into um, hiring practices and culture and, uh, employment practices. I mean, we start talking EPL right off the bat too. Like, well, you know, there's another way to protect yourself from this kind of stuff. So um, I don't know. Do you see that? Do you see a lot of those, the conversations skewing that direction? I see a lot of people that are victims, man. I see employers who think that, you know, everybody's out to screw me and this, that, and the other. And truthfully, if that's where it, um, 
if that's where it goes, I'm probably not going to work with that employer because they've got to be able to take some level of accountability. I mean, there, I've never been into an account where every single claim was fraud. It's just not. No, it's not. I mean, no, it doesn't I exist. I don't mean every claim is fraud, but I, I've seen enough businesses to where the enough businesses are telling me that uh, a, a, a percentage, a good element, a good portion of their claims are these types of claims and it's happening so frequently. I'm just, yeah. I mean, I think again, it goes back to having good processes and procedures in place, right? Like, okay. So are you doing accident and incident investigations on every single thing that happens? You know, if you are, then there, you should have witness statements and everything else. You know, what are the, what are the working conditions? One of the things we did at the resort was instead of having a single housekeeper in a room by themselves where nobody was there to witness any accidents, we put them in teams. And so that there were always two people working in the room together at the same time, they got the same amount of work done that they would get done in a day. Actually, they had got it done a little bit quicker than, than what they would by themselves but there was always somebody else to see what was going on. That alone stopped a lot of it. And the other thing is too, man, I mean, look, we could spend a whole other hour talking about cultural shift and having rewards programs in place and, and, and driving the culture to a culture of safety. You know, the other thing is if, if people are having those kinds of claims, the first thing I'm going to look at is what does your employee benefits program look like? Do you have crappy benefits? Yeah, that's a, that's the conversation I'm having is benefits and uh, hiring procedures and, spe- yeah. and, and specifically short term, short term disability. Yeah. You know, if you have a short term policy like an AFLAC or a UNUM or one of those, somebody who would file a fraudulent comp claim is more likely to file the claim on the short term because they get their money faster. Exactly. That's a great point because you have health insurance, which has a deductible and no indemnity, or you could go workers comp because a lot of these claims are litigated. That's, that's another indicator that we're seeing a a ton of litigated claims, but um, you know, they get a lawyer, uh, you know, so they're going workers comp is no deductible plus indemnity. So let's, let's go the work comp route. Well, the question is, why are they litigated, right? What, why are they litigated? 99% of workers' comp claims are decided in the first 24 hours. Yeah. It's because the employers are, do not have processes in place to actually reach out to the injured worker and show that they care, period. Like, that's it. I mean, nine times out of 10, these, these employers don't make a simple phone call. Meanwhile, they're letting an injured worker lay up on the couch and watch Oprah with 15 plaintiff's attorneys commercials in an hour segment. What do they expect to happen? Yeah, <laughs> right. It's crazy, man. <laughs> the bus injured. Yeah, no kidding. Well, listen, we've been going for an hour, man. That's all I ever ask of anybody. We could go all day long if we wanted to. I appreciate you jumping on and, and talking with us for a little bit. If uh, people want to find you, where do they find you? You got 50 blogs. You can entertain them with some you know, keyboard music. Listen, your marketing stick should be a YouTube channel where you play keyboard music and sing softly about workers' cop. I mean, I'm just throwing <laughs> that out there. <laughs> not the first person to tell me that. I think um, I think I'm getting some confirmation. That's what I need to do, man. Hearing it enough, but uh, no, my website is giscoverage.com, and that's where you find me. I'm I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn. Although 
most I'm not very active. I post all my blogs also on LinkedIn. And so there's some readership there, but I think most of my LinkedIn story is me accepting connections from people who I don't know who then immediately tell me they love to have 10 minutes of my time. Yeah, that's how, that's the quickest way for me to get the uh, uh, disconnect button. That's what we talked about yesterday. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, that's it. Website, Facebook, Eli Gillespie. People reach out to him, man. The dude is, is a freaking piano legend. He's, he's, being, uh, he's being very humble. Listen, Eli, thanks so much for coming on. We didn't even get to tell the story about Rod Johnson. We'll have to save that one for next time. But I appreciate you, uh, appreciate you jumping on, man. Have a good week. I'll catch All up right. with you soon. Sounds good. Thank you. See ya. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. <laughs>